Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 7, titled The Bear and the Maiden Fair. I have no idea why it's titled this. Me either. I couldn't tell you. Some complex allegory involving yes. the Westerosi struggle for democracy against uh, the oppression of tyranny. The oppression of Tyrion? Tyrion. Oh, Tyrion. Yes, Tyrion. <laughs> uh, it's the what, worst form of government of all. What do you think of this episode? I've liked wet shits better than. No, I, I, <laughs> oh, God. It's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good episode. You know what's funny is, like, I remember having a lot of harsh opinions about the titular Bear and Maiden Fair show, uh, showdown in mm-hmm. this episode. And as I was watching, I was bracing to just be like, see shitty CG or like bad choreography or I mean maybe that scene in the book is just a fucking barn burner or bear burner or whatever mm-hmm. but I I found it amazing that I was I guess really strongly disappointed in the scene so I haven't read that scene in the books for many many years um, and like I said maybe it was like it was just a real hellacious set piece but uh, I, 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 I thought it I thought it was good yeah, it was fine. I, I think they used a real bear for that scene. So. They did use a real bear. Yeah. The, to, the only CG would be like compositing, that kind of thing. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to interview Gwendolyn Christie about working with that particular bear um, way back when. If I can dig up that interview, I'll post it because why the fuck not? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is a good episode with um, you know a decent amount of character development, um, you know, some very difficult to watch things and unfortunate to watch things and maybe more so if you've this been your second time through the series and you kind of know what's coming but uh yeah it's also kind of like um more of a a moving things around episode too setting things up like our you know getting aria from the brotherhood to the hound getting danny you know advancing her plot line as she uh, continues her uh campaign against slaver's bay um you know, moving Rob into position where he needs to be to meet with Walder Frey and continue his campaign. Uh, but for all that, it's 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 still still entertaining. Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, it's hard to really say that this is one of the better episodes of the season, coming off the back of so many really really right. good episodes. Right. Uh, I think this was, you know, things that needed to happen, but stuff that isn't very exciting. Uh, that the bear scene. I mean, it's exciting in the moment. It's not. It's not exciting in the way that I think of Game of Thrones exciting, where Littlefinger sure. and Varys are scheming against each other. Right. Each other, where you know, Tywin and Elena are facing off uh, in the court of politics. I, I don't know. It, it's an okay episode to me. Okay, it, it's probably in a weaker season. It would have been a much better episode. Yeah, right. But this is such a strong season. Yes. Uh, so the contrast is is there. Uh, should we get started with the recap? Why not? Oh, I did notice that Michelle McLaren directed this one, hmm. which is uh, a staple of, of Game of Thrones and other show directing. Uh, and of course, also we got a new location this week uh, on the 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 big map. Uh, mm-hmm. Young the guy. windmill. Oh, yes, yes, the wind. <laughs> it, it would have been funny if they'd put the right. you know the king's windmill or whatever on the map to show you. Because I'm kind of curious exactly. You know, John's as a week's mar- a week's march away from from uh, Castle Black. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's that's a good amount of ways, especially overland and not on a road. So I kind of would like to know exactly where they are along the wall. That'd have been a cool detail to add. But yeah, so it seems like they went over the wall and they're traveling kind of parallel to the wall yeah. to get to Castle Black. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, before we get on to the recap proper, I just want to let everyone know what's going on in Bald Move this week. We are still working our way through Ball, uh, Better Call Saul Season 4. That's a current season, unlike this rewatch. And we're doing instant talks uh, on Monday night, and uh, which, which means if you're a club member, you can actually tune in after the first airing on the East Coast and jump in our chat channel and uh, li- uh, interact with us live. Get your questions and comments answered on the air. Uh, of course, you know we're doing the Game of Thrones rewatch. We're also wrapping up Sharp Objects next week. We might have actually a wrap up podcast after that. It's I've really enjoyed watching the show, and uh, tomorrow next week is the final episode. We also did a little bit of Castle Rock discussion on the Bald Move Television feed. That's where you'll find that the Bald Move TV podcast. Uh, we are releasing a Few Good Men podcast next week. It's a one of our commissioned podcasts. Great movie. Had a lot of fun podcasting about it. Uh, we also are seeing uh, the movie The Little Stranger next week, which is a gothic ghost story that's coming out. Uh, that will be in a Bald Movies feed. And don't forget, on Twitch TV slash Bald Move, every 4, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday and Thursday, Jim and I are, are getting on there. And we got a new format that we're kind of digging so far where we're watching a different kind of cheesy 80s era movie. We did Tremors. Uh, we did the last uh, or flight of the navigator, and this uh, Thursday we're doing cloak and dagger. And if you go to Twitch.tv/baldmove, there's a 14 day archive where you can watch all of our back catalog up to 14 days. And uh, if you're a club member, you can also see them anytime you want on our website, baldmove.com. That's what's going on at that there, baldmove.com. Uh, okay, let's get into the the first scene here. John explains the methods of war south of the wall to egret while she teases him about it and then Aurel tells john he's gonna lose egret because he doesn't understand the people do things only when it suits them uh i this this episode i liked Aurel less and less although i started to understand him a little bit more yeah you know later on we find out essentially he's in love with egret and right and is super jealous of john for that yeah no and i like i because i was you know, everything he was saying, I was kind of like, do I agree with, like, you know, the thrust of his argument? And I guess I, I this is where, like, I square the 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 difference between being a pessimist and an optimist. Because, like, I do agree that that's fundamental human nature, that we're humans or we're, we're animals and put against our backs to the corner will lash out at anyone and everyone. But I think that's also, like, an obligation uh, for a just society to engineer scenarios where people aren't forced into those corners and don't turn on each other. Because, like, when it suits them, when life is going good, everyone kind of loves each other and works together and and everything is is easier and better. So Mm -hmm. Oral's not wrong. He's just uh, not have the benefit of, you know, living in any kind of non-shithole situation. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the North is going to give him the non-shithole situation. He's I don't know the for. Westeros in the West. Westeros yeah. is not a great, <laughs> great place on the balance to live unless you are a high lord or lady. Yeah. And even then, you better be on the right side of whatever is currently going on in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. All right, then we go over to Catelyn worrying that Walder Frey is going to see the marriage of his daughter to Edmure as a slight, but Rob is there to remind her that Edmure is the best marriage the Frey house has ever had. And then he goes and he bangs Talisa, which I. I the irony here just the the pure I, I i don't know there's there's something delicious about saying give edmure he's great and then yeah. he goes off and does whatever the fuck he wants right with his it's good with to his be love king. life uh, uh and when they're done rob tries to plan his war but talisa 
is just looking too good. She's she's in the nude. He's totally distracted, and then he abandons planning altogether when she tells him she's pregnant. I did I did enjoy uh, and in the way that men do uh, her lying there with her like her her her, her feet <laughs> laced together like her her, her toes. It, 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 okay. it was a striking image. Um, sure, I can see writing, why he's distracted. Writing her mother and all that, but it's it's it is a, it's a sad commentary in the King of the North that yeah. he is just brushing off all of these very valid political questions, and you kind of wonder like. Maybe, maybe if Tal- Talisa were slightly less hot or Rob is slightly more focused, they wouldn't arrive a day late. Mm-hmm. But Rob's like, "Hell, I got a warm bed, and it's sh- it's shitty out there, and I'm going to lay with what my my new my new queen." It's it's not a great look. It's no, not and, a great look. And I know. Okay, Rob looks like a man full grown. He looks like a man who might be thirty years old yeah. in these scenes. Yeah. He's supposed to be like 16, right, in the books? Yeah, a, a, so, a boy, sure. I, I think when you keep that in mind, you can kind of forgive it. Like, he's playing yeah. much younger than he actually looks, I think. Uh, and so, you know, he might be distracted. He might be uh, privy to or, or susceptible to the whims of yeah. of his Although it's funny you say that because, like, I've seen people in their mid-20s and 30s get completely Twitter-pated to make bad decisions. Hell, I've seen people in their late 60s and 70s get (laughs) Twitter-pated to make bad decisions. Like, Uh uh, it is something that uh, I don't know that you outgrow. It's more – it's like maturing isn't necessarily about an age. It's more of experience sure. and and wisdom that hopefully comes with it. But uh, I think sixteen year olds are are not going to have characteristically <laughs> not great at judgment. Sure, they've got zero Especially experience when it comes to sex, zero experience, zero wisdom, yeah. and one hundred and ten percent hormones. So right. uh, no surprise there. It's understandable. It's still so stupid. Right. There's a lot of uh, gratuitous sexual nudity. Mm-hmm. Um, there is uh, like I, I the beginning of the episode is like okay well. You know, you got uh, King Rob, and he, he's got the nice ass, and Talisa, but then it just, like, the, the hits kept coming. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, good good for uh, Richard Mast- Mardston, or whatever his name is, for uh, bear- bearing that uh, that kingly ass. Uh, Tormund would know what to do with all the gratuitous nudity in That's this right. episode. That's right. As he advises John how to fuck a woman, uh, <laughs> then Oral professes his love to Egret and tells her that she won't like John when she finds out what he really is. Uh, well, did we mention that Talisa was pregnant last scene? Because I feel like yes, maybe okay. Because like if you hadn't watched the show, that's a big detail that we that that uh, we might have glossed over. Um, I like Tormund, and in the book, he is very much car- a comic relief, and he's well known for like making these vulgar statements and then giving a hearty har. Hmm. And I liked how they kind of included that aspect of his character here. You know, he's humping his backpack and he's talking about how you, <laughs> you, you know, I don't know. It feels like a very different Tormund than we see the first time we meet him. Right. Where John tries to bow to him as the, the king beyond the wall here. Right. Uh, yeah, it's good. And Aurel is just uh, oral. I don't know how you say that. Is stirring up so much shit. Uh, I do understand why he's being such a shit to John. He's jealous, A, that John is prettier than him, but also I, that he's stolen. He's a Egret. walking forever alone meme. Yeah. And... Uh, you know that's the thing. It's like, oh, you think pretty will make you happy, and Egret's like, it's one of the things. Uh-huh. You if he's know? got all the other things too. Then I also like the bravery and loyalty, uh, mm-hmm. and and all that. But yeah, it doesn't help that he's 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 very very pretty too. Like, yeah. I don't know, that's nice guy. Or I'll just stop at the nice guy shit. <laughs> 
need to give up. You need to go find. You need to stop. Stop getting. You need to stop spending all your time inside that fucking crow mm-hmm. and and widen out, man. Widen yeah. out or the eagle or whatever the hell it is. You got bird brain. <laughs> All right, uh, move on to Sansa, who can't believe how stupid she was to want to come to King's Landing. Uh, Marjorie's there, and she tells her to make the best of her circumstances, though Sansa finds that hard when she thinks of what her and Tyrion's children might be like. And then Marjorie just blows Sansa's mind by telling her that Tyrion's pl- proliferate sexual encounters with women might somehow be a good thing for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, and, uh, like, you know, Marjorie's almost like, you sweet summer child, of course my yep. mother taught me. Well, how else would I have gotten <laughs> right. all of this information and experience? Definitely not learned by fucking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, I, it's just, poor Sansa, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you, you wonder when she's going to hit rock bottom, because, and that's the th- reason that I could never fully hate Sansa after, like, the first season is mm-hmm. because she sees and and appropriately blames herself for a lot of the things that happen like you know instead of just getting out the first opportunity i decided to go for the brass ring of loris and now i'm just a stupid girl with stupid dreams that never learns um which is a paradox i feel because she says she's stupid she she says she never learns mm-hmm. but she learned that she's stupid so <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true and if she yeah. was an android on star trek her brain yeah. would just melt at the at the paradox but uh yeah no it's it's and but, but still i mean she's still snotty and stuck up and like i thought it was marjorie was good trying to get her to make lemonade from all these lemons like you know Tyrion's not the worst lannister has he ever been personally mean to you and yeah if sansa thinks back actually he's been quite nice and he was a large part of my shield when i was under the lash of joffrey and but he's a dwarf and he's got a fucked up face and he's a lannister like i i i get all the reasons why sansa would be less than enthused at this match but sure like marjorie said you know like if you can get through it however you define it like and you have children with this man then they're going to be wealthy powerful people and you'll yeah. in all likelihood uh eventually make your way back to your home and you know the starks will still be kind of in winter i yeah i don't know i'm, I'm not buying it myself <laughs> no i mean this is the best part of the scene though because it if you weren't already onto it onto the tyrell plan now you fully understand it right marjorie says look i'm essentially i'm gonna sacrifice myself Mm -hmm. i'm gonna be joffrey's bride but i'm gonna get to teach the kids Mm -hmm. and the tyrells will own the throne a generation from now right like they they are playing the long game where everybody else is playing joffrey's an idiot he's not going to uh he's not going to bother himself so like they'll essentially culturally assimilate the lannister regime into the tyrell regime and it's it's a long but it's it's funny because like it really shows the difference between marjorie who is a political opportunist Mm -hmm. and and Sansa, who is a stupid girl, stupid dreams. Like <laughs> sure. Sansa really believes all that courtly shit. Marjorie only does in so much as it gets her closer to what she wants. Like yeah. this is she sees, ah, this is the system I'm born in. How can I maximize the things that I can bring to this system to get me the highest score in the game? And Sansa just want, sees the system but actually sees a false you know, that like the, the she she buys the the sales and marketing of that system. Mm-hmm. Um, even even as as little as le- one episode ago. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, we'll see how that plays out for her. We go over to Braun, who is having a lot of trouble sympathizing with Tyrion's plight, given that Sansa is so young and beautiful. Uh, he says, look, look on the bright side, Tyrion. You're going to have two women and a whole kingdom to rule over once he and Sansa have a child. Uh, what's not to love? But Tyrion doesn't really see it that way. It's the, these are two mirrors because like Marjorie's trying to talk Sansa into Tyrion and mm-hmm. Bronn's trying to talk Tyrion into Sansa. Yeah, it's a weird scene because they're like at this time I think Sophie was actually fifteen, maybe sixteen, <laughs> and in the book she's supposed to be like you know thirteen, fourteen. So they're essentially talking. You're talking this man, this man into deflowering a child, and yeah, you know, uh, to modern ears that's. Uh, that that sounds very very disturbing and 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 i guess Tyrion is the good guy for like you know trying to put up a fight and and trying to you know be the advocate for sansa's feelings in the matter and mm-hmm. uh, but there's also the shay thing uh that's <laughs> wrapped up to it and you know that's just i just have a hard time i just have a hard time with shay i do too we, there's gonna be a scene later on where yeah, we'll probably discuss. It's that. It's so hard but... to discuss, like it, the, the, this, the stuff like this, like. But but the thing is, is like I had a lot of antipathy towards Shay before I was a book reader, before I kind of knew things were coming. It just hmm. like always seemed like the problem was that they never were like any kind of what you'd call evenly yoked. Like they didn't sure. really want the same things. They didn't have the same in like things that were important to them and family and culture. And it was just a, it was a, it was ill match. And you wonder like how much of it was just the fact that Tyrion has not experienced what he would consider genuine love very often. And Mm. Shay uh, showed that to him, um, or at least did, did, did the thing that the, the, the sex workers do and made you believe it. And he just fell for hook, line and sinker. It's his, it's arguably his biggest flaw. The fact that he's this gaping hole that that needs love and affection that he never has get, gotten from his family or from his lovers, yeah. and he can be manipulated so easy by anyone that that shows him that respect or love or loyalty or appreciation. Yeah, and I think it's you know a person in his position who he is. Uh, there's not a lot of opportunity to explore the idea of love yeah. in his life, right? Because he's going to be married. Um, either out of spite or in order to secure some castle somewhere, some Mm -hmm. lands or some favor, like that's his fate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes in that world, people don't get married out of love right? more often than not. And so like, you know, Marjorie's talking about how there's not a lot of opportunity for women to experience uh, sexual experiences. To go sexual shopping and see what you like. Right. But also there's no, there's no opportunity for anyone to experience love either. Right. The, The men at least get the benefit of, of, Bonin, right, uh, and and sampling all the der- their desires there, but right. no one gets to love in this world. Yeah, I mean, like, and if you do, you're probably penalized for it. Yeah, like like the thing that like Ned and and Cat have is 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 rare, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a surprise. It, yeah, and it was it was forced upon them. Yes. to begin with, it didn't it didn't happen immediately. It happened over years. And, so, and 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 you see in in the books, Cat's POV where she was like legitimately attracted to Ned's older brother, mm-hmm. but then he got killed, and now she's marrying this grim face Stark who wasn't really into it, and she was very had a lot of mixed feelings about it. And it contrasts that to Cersei, who was excited to marry the big, strong, handsome Robert Baratheon, who was lovesick over 
uh, Leanna Stark and never really did anything but kind of use her. And, like, it's just story after story of people yeah. being disillusioned or occasionally pleasantly surprised that, oh, wow, I actually can love this person. But uh, but it seems like you also pay a price for that, right? Especially someone in Tyrion's position. Or, like, look at Rob. You know, it's causing him all sorts of problems in this war right? because he chose to go with his heart instead of his head. Yeah, like in uh, a in Machiavellian world, emotions are almost never good mm-hmm. because they're just things that can use, be used against you and cloud your judgment of what is ultimately, empirically, the right thing to do. Right. Uh, so then we go to Joffrey calling Tywin to the throne room to give... Him an update on the small council meetings and to ask why they haven't done anything about the threat of Danny's dragons. Tywin doesn't believe the dragons will ever be big enough to pose a threat. And then Joffrey is really upset that he's not being consulted on anything. So Tywin soothes his worries by promising that he will be consulted when necessary. Uh, this is a really good scene. Charles Dance, just fucking incredible. His walk off where he's just oh, got like, he just kind of swaggering off the throne and kind of smirking at like, and that scene I mean, where his he walk up like where, yeah where when he, he climbs the stairs joffrey was to like, demonstrate the point yeah like i'm letting giving you a lot of fucking runway here uh, grandson but now i'm going to step right up on your level and if you keep giving me lip guess what's going to happen like i mean it's funny because we've debated like tywin and whether he'll be able to get this boy king under heel but like mm-hmm. the early results looks like that joff is is terrified he in is. fact um, it's kind of amazing after seeing the scene that he worked up the courage to give his grandpa lip at all. Yeah, like essentially, why aren't I being consulted about these small council meetings? Why are you oh, having them in your line. house instead of my house? You you are being consulted at this very moment. Yeah, yeah, you're be, yeah. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, and like, well, we can always have you you you, you carried. Uh, and uh, just just everything about Charles Dance is amazing. Like. The slightest of bows that he gives to Joffrey as he says your grace at the beginning. Like, it's almost, it's barely imperceptible. Yeah. Or it's barely perceptible, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have one big question yeah. in this scene. Why is Joffrey taking the active role or trying to take an active role now? And that's a great question. And I wonder if it, if Marjorie put it up to him, put him up to it, or if um, he's like emboldened by murdering Roz, and he thinks oh, I'm a man now, and I've like, oh, and like since Grandpa's mm-hmm. been here, I haven't, I haven't known shit about what's going on. Like maybe I, I, I don't know, I because like, I, I, it doesn't seem like it's something Marjorie would put him up to. I don't think it's something that Cersei would put him up to. I think it's kind of came from within. Like, I'm a man full grown. Yeah, and... it's just sort of weird for Game of Thrones to do that, I guess. Like, yeah. normally they give you a reason leading up to yeah. someone's decisions. Yeah. Uh, but here he just kind of makes it out of the blue. Yeah, I think you're supposed to. I mean, the, the what I, I shouldn't say you're supposed to. I say that I, I say that because you just see scene after scene of Tywin scribbling notes and meeting with the small council, and the king's never there, and he's mm-hmm. just taking all these unilateral actions without any kind of. And and I think that that has it. it, it it's amazing how long. Like, what is this? The seventh episode? It's taken this long, you know, because because Tywin wrote in at the end of last season. It's taken this long for Joffrey to notice. Hey, I'm not even really. Am I even really the king? I just feel like he could. They could have like 
drop the line to him about Danny because we don't even know how he found out about the yeah. dragons, right? Like, yeah, just have Varys mention something or and him looking concerned. He's or... riding in a litter through town and he sees out his window as he's holding his nose like a mummer's thing about Danny yeah. and her dragons. Something, you're right. Something. It, it was just out of the blue. It, it kind of put me off, but yeah. Uh, hopefully, it has consequences going forward and they're setting something else up. Yeah. Uh, so then, speaking of Danny, she comes upon the city of Yunkai, which might pose a threat to her goals if she tries to take it. Unfortunately, her conscience will not let her sit by as slaves in the city continue to be slaves. So she tells Grey Worm to deliver a message to Yunkai, surrender or suffer the same fate as asked for. Then one of the masters comes out to meet her, and he offers to forgive her for her actions in Astapor and give her gold and ships as long as she takes them and leaves for Westeros. Danny counters by offering his life in exchange for the slaves' freedom, and she kicks him out of her tent without his chest of gold. Then she tells Jorah, find out who the powerful friends that he mentioned are. Uh, man, I usually like Danny. I think she's not very calculated in her in her decisions most of the time she's inexperienced she's young she's a lot like rob in that Mm -hmm. way um but this i I cannot picture a scenario in which littlefinger Varys, tywin Tyrion, anybody without power or with power would get into this without knowing who those powerful friends are you're not wrong it really shows how that's like you think of the small council She's essentially got two guys dueling for the position of Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard, uh-huh. and maybe her her she, bang piece. She, exactly. <laughs> like, she she doesn't. Yeah, like and bed warmer. One uh-huh. of them is jockeying for bed warmer. The other is like, oh, that's too, that, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> uh, she doesn't have master coin. She doesn't have uh, you know a master of whispers. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a uh, citadel trained maester uh, training her with the the, the diplomacy and. She she just like she doesn't know anything. The one trick she's got is she's got dragons and a fierce army and some swagger and you know flush from mm-hmm. from previous victories and she feels righteous. So she's going with that. And I felt like her show. I I don't know. I, I guess I felt her show of strength was appropriate. No, I like her sentiment. Like yeah. I want to go free these slaves. That's yeah. my There's number two hundred thousand. I got two hundred thousand reasons and, to free the city, and nothing is going to stop me, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how weak I seem in the moment. But. I just think that she needs to calculate her moves a little bit better. Right. I was also like, man, when they're offering her all this gold and as many ships as she needs to go to Westeros, like, wow, what an opportunity. Yeah. What an opportunity. It's tempting. But I, I also think she doesn't have the army she needs, right? Like, she can get the ships. She yeah. can get the gold. Maybe she can buy an army with the gold. I don't know. But right now, she doesn't have what she needs to conquer Westeros. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... You would have to do a lot of diplomacy. You'd you'd take yeah. the seed of like your eight thousand, um, your eight thousand unsullied, and you're the promise of dragons, and your famous name, and you would have to, you know, land at a place that's like. But that's the thing; she doesn't even have. Uh, she would have no idea. Like, where would you land in Westeros right now? That would be your best shot at a foothold. Mm-hmm. Like your ancestral home, Dragonstone. Stannis is camping there with the, the remainder of his army. Good luck taking mm-hmm. that. You know, like where, like in the north, there's no one there. You know, like where yeah. is the place? Door, like she, she doesn't, she doesn't have any idea. So it's 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 weird because like the fanboy in me wants her to take her ships and her army and her dragons and <laughs> go over there, but uh-huh. the you know the I guess the fan of great drama sees that she's really untested and untried and needs a lot more experience. She does. 
She does. But she at least knows the right the answer. She at least knows to ask the right questions. Like, who are these powerful friends? Let's find out. Mm-hmm. Because this was all foreplay. You know, him with the chest of gold, her with the dragon snapping. This like the you know these are these are just these are just threats and saber rattlings until she feels uh, figures out his full strength. And I don't know. It seems like it's okay to, an okay way to play for now. All right, we go on to Tyrion trying to smooth things over with Shay. She is less than interested in letting his uh, wedding to Sansa go. And he promises he'll buy her a home in the city and give her fine clothes as well as children. She says that she's just his whore, and when he gets tired of fucking her, she will be nothing. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's kind of an accurate statement from the start of your relationship, yes? No, well, that's that's what I'm like. What I thought was interesting is everything here was a completely honest conversation. It's uh-huh. just a conversation about people that it's time for them to part ways because, right. like Tyrion said, it's like cross a narrow sea and do what? Uh, juggle, juggle, be a fool, because yeah. that's what he could do. That's what he could do in the free cities. Right. And you're worried about me banging Sansa? What are you going to do when we get over there, huh? Right, right. You're going to go back to your profession? Right. Am yeah. I going to be cool with that? Yeah. Like, it's 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 tough because, like, what he can provide her is a very comfortable mm-hmm. living, and he she could be the true woman behind the great man as, as you know, however attractive that might be to her. Um, and, like, you know, this, this vague concept of always be your lady, but that's not enough for 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 Shay. So I mean that's the thing that's that's what Tyrion promised her, right? That she could come to King's Landing and be the hands lady. Right. Uh I don't know what she took that to mean though. Like mm-hmm. there's obviously no official marriage in the cards here. Right. Uh she should have known that from the start. I think Tyrion said as much. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I get it. I get why she's upset, but what is Tyrion to do? What 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 am I to do, Shay? Yeah. There's not enough eyebrows in the world. Uh yeah, I mean <sighs> It's yeah, I like I said, I don't I it's these are frustrating things to watch because they're people trying to make a connection that just can't be made. And mm-hmm. I think Tyrion is smarter and I also don't see I do not see what he sees in Shay. And that's what like every time I go and read interviews with the double D's and even George Martin himself saying, Oh, when we got this uh, Shay character, uh and she just blew us away with how charming and attractive. And then she's, I've met her. She's a perfectly nice lady woman. And I don't mean this to, to disparage her in any way, but like to get this under Tyrion's skin, I think she would have to be just like jaw droppingly beautiful and like, and, 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 and insanely charming. Mm-hmm. She'd have to be like, um, some I, I don't even know. I don't even know to make me believe that Tyrion would just be at like at some point just be like. But on the other hand, like he's starved with love, and she professes to love him. And I'm going to say this, is it, but but the thing is, here's the thing. Yeah. What I, if I really want to talk? If I want to want to talk brass tacks, I don't believe Tyrion in his what 30 years of life and all the whoring that he has done. I don't think that Shay is really the first prostitute to tread the like, oh, I've got a Lannister in my bed. I'm going right. to really turn on the jets and mm-hmm. like, you know, try to ingratiate myself. Like Tyrion should be an expert I mean, we, at shedding this kind of attention the way a duck has evolved to shed water off their feathers, man. We we know she's not. Right. I mean, he was married to her right. before. So Right. Although, yeah, that's complex and maybe a spoiler but i yeah they they say it in this episode yeah right but yeah but i think there's more to the story that we know so far anyway okay 
Um, I, yeah, I just, I, I just don't buy that. I, I don't see. I don't think the show did like because they played a game of Truth and Dare. Mm-hmm. Like when they're drunk, like that's the thing that like sold her on, sold him on her. Because like I just have never seen why Tyrion, Tyrion would be anything but cynical about this relationship. Yeah, and uh, he- here's the thing about Shay: she's got an uphill battle when she's going to give what is basically everyone's favorite character shit. Yeah, everyone loves Tyrion. Yeah, everyone across the board loves Tyrion. So yeah. when you have a character directly opposed to that character uh, like, like and what had, he needs you're gonna hate that character you know they had a concrete scheme where like kind of like a Loras Rinley thing where she's pushing him to some greatness that is dangerous but attainable if she made him better in some way like, yeah. like if yeah if there's like some kind of like scheme they had like well if we if we do this that and the other then my dad's head will be in a noose and I will rule Westeros or I've got a way to like get get, get away the um, 100 million gold dragons and we can go and fucking buy a free city and I'll make uh, dwarves the rulers of the land I, I get it but like it's just her why her always complaining about things that are impossible and him always feeling hurt and betrayed and it's just this it's just it seems like it's just a terrible relationship <laughs> yeah it does and again there's definite reasons that Tyrion could be susceptible but like i said i you, you have to ignore the rest of the history that he's lived through to you know i don't know i don't know maybe she's a one in a million something to Tyrion, but i've never bought yeah. it never bought it all right, Melisandre and Gendry sail to King's Landing as she tries to convince him that he's the son of the king. Seems like it works. He, yeah. he looks up at that castle and goes, oh, shit, yeah. No, I mean, this is like, you feel like Gendry is starting the hero's journey. You right. You know, like, you are, you, you're, you're Luke Skywalker, and you just found out that you are the son of the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy. Uh, and, like, everything about this scene is epic in its staging. Like, I love yeah. them silently gliding over the shipwrecks and how, like, fucking eerie... That is, and it also allows Melisandre to get in her dig of like, none of this would have happened if I was here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, finding some stuff about Mel, the fact that she comes, she was a, a background as a slave, and now arguably she is one of, if not the most powerful woman in, in, in Westeros um, in terms of her influence on the, the Stannis, the, 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 the rightful king. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, and the, like the behold your father's house sequence as that dawns on Gendry of like, you know, what, what she's talking about here and his, yeah. his royal blood, I th- I thought was really great and exciting. Are they going to clean up these shipwrecks? You'd seems, think they would like have, like you'd have to dredge a in. channel or something. Right. Yeah. Like, in fact, I was expecting, like, I don't know that ship's keel is going to make over, make it over that, that, that ship looked much, I thought we is going to like, you just hear crunch uh-huh. and like, but yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd think that they would need the, the dredge at least a channel so people can get yeah. in and out. They should probably get on that. I imagine Joffrey's not too quick to clean. Like, you know, maybe they get a channel, mm. but I think he likes seeing the bones of all those ships yeah. and being like, look, look at, look at what I did. Right. You come at me crazy and look what happens. Like the dragon skull. It's, right? it's, it's Ned's head on the parapet mm-hmm. writ large, you know? All right, then we go to Arya, still pissed about the Brotherhood giving up Gendry. Uh, the archer comes in. I don't know his fucking name. Says, Audrey. Uh, Audrey? Audrey. Audrey says they found a group of Lannister soldiers. Everyone decides to go after them instead of uh, doing what Arya wants. And she makes a break for it. And she's grabbed in the woods by the Hound, who's been... 
skulking about, lurking yeah. in the woods. Hoping to catch an Arya. <laughs> uh, maybe hoping to catch a, a Brotherhood, uh, a Bannerman. Like, mm, yeah, like pay back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, a, a no Bannerman. Yeah, score, settle a score. It, it's, it is interesting why he is this close. Close mm-hmm. enough to like, you know, like this, she what, made it three, four hundred yards out of the cave? Yeah. And um, we don't really know. But it's interesting for Sandor because now he's got a hostage that you know, like if you're if you're thinking about him playing his version of the Game of Thrones, like maybe he's starting to think, hey, maybe I could get back. Like I just said, fuck the king. How do I undo that? <laughs> Capturing Arya Stark is is a good first step for any kind of man in his position. Yeah, because you could ingratiate yourself with the king in the north. You could probably be fairly well rewarded by returning her to Stannis because that's a chip for him. You could definitely mm-hmm. maybe worm your way back into the king's favor by uh, returning her to, to Winterfell so, or not Winterfell, King's Landing, so that the match set. So it it makes sense. It makes sense from his perspective what a boon that is. Yeah. Uh, then Jamie visits Brienne the night before he leaves. He promises to return the Stark girls to their mother, and they say goodbye. Uh, then the next morning, Jamie packs his horse and he rides off as Locke taunts him and says, they'll take good care of Brienne. Mm. I really liked this scene of Jamie visiting Brienne in, in the dungeon as a nice coda to their bathtub sequence because mm-hmm. that moment at the end where she says, goodbye, Sir Jamie, and uh, Jamie's, the look on his face, like the the... Because it's not, he's not the first time he's been referred to as Sir, but it's almost always with a little bit of mocking behind it or because people feel like they have to because he's the Lannister and he's a Kingsguard. Um, someone that clearly respects the code of chivalry and can't be a knight because of what, what she, you know, because she was born without a penis, if we're, if we're being, mm-hmm. being accurate. But someone that, that like embodies all those qualities and has been nothing more uh, nothing more than righteous with him saying that and like humanizing him, it really touches him. Yeah, and and it, this scene shows that Brienne's mind about Jamie was changed when mm-hmm. when you know he told his story about how the the Mad King's death really went down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, just not that. I think she. I mean, that's definitely the no, icing no, on a, the cake. That's a huge part it's of it. It's a huge I mean, part of it. That that's what telling him. You know, you now have this responsibility, and him making right. this oath. Right. If she didn't trust him, if right. she didn't understand that that oathbreaker mm-hmm. uh, is just a name that people yeah. have called him, a slur against him, yeah. then that that scene would be nothing. But I also want to discount the things that he's actually done, putting himself on the line to spare Brienne. You know, so I, it's sure, not just yeah. his words and his his tragic backstory, but he, I, you know, it's like. You're starting to see the hero inside Jamie's shine through, and mm-hmm. Brienne sees that too, and that's why it's it's just a really meaningful exchange. But but the hero that's always been there, yes. you know, he's not the coward and the the betrayer, the the treasonous betrayer that people say he is. Yeah, Jamie Jamie grows up in the Stark household, mm-hmm. totally different story. Yeah, yeah. Um, then there's that scene with Roose, which I kind of like, uh, and Locke is just a shit, right? But he'll. Give, well, I was going to say he'll get his, but nothing happens to him at the end of this. Jamie just makes fun of him. Yeah. Um, and we find that Kyburn's going to come with him because he's hoping that, uh, yeah. you know, saving Jamie's life is going to get him his chain back. Uh-huh. All right. So Theon's taken off his cross. I, 
uh, like there's two pieces of wood that cross each other, so I'm going to call it a cross. I know it's not the typical configuration. I think it's it's because I uh, um, I don't know what the name for it my is. writing partner Anthony used this like the learned term. I think it's like saltair, maybe no, like like that me. like cross okay. that's on its side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I know it. I know it's got a proper term. I just don't. I just don't know quite <laughs> okay. what it is. Or St. Andrew's cross is another one because apparently that's that the how he was crucified. Uh, so he's given some water and he's rubbed up and down by a couple of women who take their clothes off and begin grinding on him until a horn blows and the mop boy comes into the room <laughs> in spectacular fashion. Uh, he has his men hold Theon down as the mop boy cuts off his cock. Mm. Just At least few, that's the implication. few alterations. Take, yeah. Take off an inch here, an inch there. Um, yeah, this is torture. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, it's pretty, pretty... Pretty, pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And not not real feel-good nudity. Not, no. not the fun kind of nudity. No. I don't have much to say about that scene other than, ugh. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're, taking, they're, t- they're taking everything that Theon was proud of. His name, uh... His 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 house, his cock, like he mm-hmm. this 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 mop boy is just breaking him down. To what end? That's what I think people after watching seven episodes of this are asking. Yeah. All right. So then Egret and John go hunting, and they continue marching along the wall. On the road, they tease each other about being impressed by windmills and liking girls who swoon. And when Egret suggests that she'll take him to Winterfell once the Free Folk take their land back, John tells her. History is not on her side, and they can't win because their army is not a real army. Uh, Egret seems pretty fatalistic about the whole thing. If we die, we die, but first we'll live. Right. Um, I think these people are super cute, and they just got married recently. <laughs> uh, Kit Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie. Uh-huh. And like, I really enjoyed the scene where she's talking about uh, she's wearing the finest silk from tra la 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 day or whatever, mm-hmm. and she falls back in her arms dramat- dramatically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it, it, it's cute and like him trying to explain the difference between a windmill and a tower and <laughs> yeah. like the fact that women down south swoon mm-hmm. and she's like the fuck what swoon what why you know and uh, like you know the truism that like you know why would a woman be squeamish about blood because in their lifetimes they see, probably see much more than your average man um and then like just the desperation of him like you guys are gonna get torn to pieces by a professional army mm-hmm. you guys are you know it's not about your courage your bravery your strength it's about superior tactics and training and yeah. weaponry you're throwing rocks they're swinging swords right like, and it's about like supply chains and logistics and like even mm-hmm. if you do take castle black you'll like you, they'll just get 50,000 mounted soldiers and you have zero mm-hmm. uh, you know you got maybe a giant or two riding the tank which is not bad <laughs> But, uh, you know, back in my Command and Conquer days, mammoth tanks didn't do too well against just masses of, of, uh, of, of smaller units. So it's, it's true. Especially and he's like those bazooka guys. Right. Yeah. And it, she just, yeah, I mean, this is a little bit of a Shea Tyrion situation in that it's like Egret can't see his point of view. Like, mm-hmm. has, how could she? She can't conceive. Yeah. Of stacking stones high enough that like a like a like that a farmer can just manage on his own, right? And you know, like she she literally probably couldn't conceive of like a king's landing 
Just like a caveman couldn't conceive of yeah, a helicopter. Yeah, blow her freaking mind right. if she saw that. Right, whereas John has, you know, he's in a frustrating position. It's like, yeah, I've been north. I see I, I see all the good stuff about it, but it's it's not going to matter. But I don't know. It's like the thing in the back of my mind is like Mance thinks this is possible. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just complete desperation. Maybe he doesn't. It's like, well, I'd rather die outside the wall than be ripped apart by whites and white walkers. Yeah. Um and yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe I'm trusting that like I was like like you know it might be as simple as like hey I show up outside the gates with a hundred thousand men women and children are the Black Brothers really going to butcher us down to the last person mm-hmm. and like if only the women and children survive and they're safe like is that not a sacrifice worth making like that some of us live you know yeah. so I guess I don't know. I don't know whether Mance thinks he can win or it's just it's just a desperate gamble and and kind of like weirdly banking on the honor and humanity of the Night's Watch. Yeah, I think the other important thing in this scene is that Egret is still trying to break John. You know, John, when he says, hey, you can't defeat them, you will all die. He's not including himself in that group. Right. And she calls him out on it. Yeah. And she sees that. And I and I think. She thinks that her her love, his feelings for her will prevail here, um, which is, I guess, possible. But this has happened multiple times now, mm-hmm. and he is still, it seems, unbroken. Right. Well, cause in, I, in, in, you know, the way you break a horse kind of thing. I think she just thinks that at the end of the day, she's correctly assessed the situation that I'm your lady and you're my man. And regardless of your feelings on macro politics, that that's just going to carry the day. And I, I was like, yeah, yeah we'll she, see. I mean, and I don't think she cares about dying. Like, I, no, I, she I think yeah. they just have a fundamentally different way of looking at life and death. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I'd rather do this than die on my on on my knees. So yeah. that's the whole. We'll live first, you know. Okay, so we go to Asha, who gets upset. How which, much hmm. in Kit and Rose's daily life do they quote Game of Thrones at each other? I think they don't talk to each other except in Game of Thrones. It's just like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's always egret, and that's what's in their yeah. cell phones. Like, I, I, I mean, there's no way it's zero. Like, it's of like every yeah. week they gotta. Have... I mean, you know nothing. You know nothing, yeah. Jon Snow. I mean, oh she has God. to say that to him daily. Yeah, I would be profoundly disappointed and 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 think that they have no sense of humor if this wasn't like a part of their semi daily life. Yeah, because it's just I don't think it would get old. How fucking cool would that be? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> right. Because it's, it's got to be a cool experience filming this thing, and the, these characters are so iconic, and it's like it's just a fucking romantic as hell story, and mm-hmm. then it's happening in real life. Like, ah, I don't know. I, I To me, uh, that was more important than any royal wedding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't care less about the, the royal king weddings. king of the north marrying a princess, a wildling princess. Like, I, fuck, fuck the Windsors and That's their castles. Yeah, yeah. Give me, give me Kit and Rose in a windmill any day. So Asha gets upset that Jojen's just sitting around filling Bran's head with black magic, as she calls it, and she demands that they head to Castle Black, but Jojen and Bran are adamant about heading north to find the raven uh, beyond the wall, and Asha tells the story of Bruni, her man, who died and turned into a zombie and tried to kill her, which is why she refuses to go any further north than Castle Black. Mm-hmm. There's a, a really good Hodor in this scene. <laughs> uh, I really appreciated the just... How much and how little that says yeah. at the same time. That's, it's, 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 it's like, you said it all, Hodor. Hodor. You said it all. <laughs> you said it all. Right on, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's as I was watching this, I'm like, this is kind of ridiculous because we're all aware of the White Walkers and how they operate. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. like we're essentially watching the Reed children and Bran get up to speed with where we've been since season one. Sure. But I think it was important to kind of like throw a wet blanket over Bran and Jojen's like wild optimism of like, oh, we're just like, you know, speaking in our little fucking twin language and you guys can't possibly understand. She's like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what's uh, about the true North boys. So I don't know. Like I said, it was a little bit, a little bit recappy for me, but I think it was an, it was an important character to uh, beat to make. Yeah. It's something that needed to happen. And I guess this is, you know, what happens when you don't, when you have so many characters in so many different places yeah. and none of them have all of the knowledge or the same knowledge, yeah. you have to kind of go over this multiple times. But I think it's also a pretty good refresher for, you know, the audience the, who may have forgotten about the stuff that we saw early on in the series. Sure, sure. So uh, we go to Jamie then who gets his bandage changed by Kyburn as he explains why he was demastered. Uh, apparently he was performing sick experiments on dying men. And Jamie's appalled by the thought until Kyburn points out that he's killed many men to save many more, uh, just as just as Kyburn says he was doing. Yeah, it's so funny because like Ky- Kyburn thought that was going to be a slam dunk moment. Like, oh, you've killed countless people, but how many have you saved, sir, Jamie? Yeah. MD. <laughs> and he's like five hundred thousand. Yeah, five hundred, yeah, half a million. <laughs> What's your count, Kyburn? <laughs> yeah, go fuck yourself. That's what I thought. Uh, Jamie asks if he'd heard from Brienne's father about buying Brienne's safe return. He has, but Kyburn doesn't think that. Uh, Roos is going to take it because he's holding out for a boatload of sapphires, or, sorry, Locke, uh, thanks to the idea that Jamie put in his head about Tart's vast mines. Uh, then Jamie demands that they return to Hall, and he badgers his captor into taking him there. Yeah, that's... Huh. It's funny because, like, all of Jamie's heroics and theatrics and saving Brienne have now doomed her. Mm-hmm. Like, he saved her yeah. honor, but now it's going to lose her life because, you know, this, this lock guy is like, 300 gold dragons, you got all, every sapphire in the kingdom, you, you, you fucker. Uh-huh. I'm not give, giving your daughter up for that. Um, so it, it's, it, and I, I love how uh, Nikolai plays that, just with like the like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I thought it was funny when he says, what's the purpose of an arm with no hand? Mm-hmm. You're the one who wanted to keep it, fucker. You right. made Kyburn not chop it off, so right. don't don't question your handless arm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's would be funny if Kyburn's like, yeah, he's like, I totally agree. Gets his knife out, the gleam in his eye. <laughs> right. I want to take it off the shoulder. It's still not too late. So not too late. Yeah, uh, and then he just like. Jamie is a bit frustrating here, and but it's realistic. But like he. <laughs> Like you got this asshole who knows he's the worth his worth as a hostage, mm-hmm. and he's going to play it to the hilt. And yeah, I, I yeah. guess it also further ennobles his character because he's seen how uh, Jamie's putting his life on the line. Because number one, like these men could just decide, you know what, fuck Lord Bolton, mm-hmm. I don't care. You, you, life here is nasty, brutish, or short anyway. Yolo, cut off his head, or they could take his other hand, or they could yeah. take his cock, or. They could blind him, or like there's lots of ways that they can fulfill the letter of of, of Roose Bolton's law without giving Jamie what he wants, and he's got to know that his experience with Locke has, mm-hmm. is is demonstrating that. Yet he still puts his his life and livelihood on on uh, the line to to rescue Brienne. Yeah, um, and he does so. He doubles down on that in this next scene where he arrives back in Heron Hall, finds Brienne in a pit with a bear. And so he jumps in to save her, and he barely makes that alive with the bear nipping at his heels. 
And he tells Locke that he's taking Brienne with him to King's Landing and that Locke will have to kill him to stop it. Locke backs down. Yeah. I mean, I mean this, the, you couldn't put your life and livelihood more on the line than jumping in a pit with a bear. Yeah, yeah, because the bear doesn't know that this is all a game stage for people's amusements. <laughs> and, and he looks a little bit like a maiden fair, so yeah, you know, he's a little dirty, yeah. but he's got that nice flowing hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the bear mistakes him for you know a tasty maiden. Sure. Uh, what kind of honey does he pot does he got? Uh, <laughs> I do think that I do like how they've they've really played up the bear and the maiden fair. So you're aware of the concept, and it's a yeah. nice little world building touch that like you can just see like how happy these these Bolton guys would be to see this kind of like savage entertainment and. I don't know, it's kind of fucked up if you think about it, but um, it also was clever foreshadowing mm-hmm. all the bear and the maiden fair stuff that we've seen before. Um, yeah, I I mean. And damn, Brienne, like, how long has she been in that pit? Like, she's been mauled already once, and mm-hmm. she's got a wooden sword, and she's kept this 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 bear at bay. Pretty, pretty badass, Brienne. Yeah. Uh, she takes a couple of shots from the bear that we see yeah. as well. And the the one Bolton guy was, like, helping out with the crossbowing of the bear. Maybe that weakened him a little bit, gave him uh, let, let, let. Because, like, it was a near thing. Like, Jamie almost got, like, a, a half second later, and that bear would have got clamped down on his ankle, and there'd mm-hmm. be there'd be one less Lannister running around the world. Or one less foot on Jamie. Yeah, one less <laughs> foot on Jamie for sure. Maybe. Um, but yeah, and I also like how the scene starts, the bear and a maiden fair, and then it uh, eventually turns into the reign of the reigns of the Castamere. Yeah. The Lannister's triumphant, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the parting shot of sorry about the sapphires. Pretty good. He's not sorry. I don't think he's sorry. No, he's not. <laughs> That's the end of the episode. That is the end of the episode. Hey, I want to tell you about Club, the club, the Bald Move Club, club.baldmove.com. It is how we pay for us to do full-time podcasting. Like, if you listen to our housekeeping segment, you realize that we produce a lot of content. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes all the time, and the way we're able to finance that is almost entirely due to direct listener support. It's not just charity. You get a lot of cool features uh, for your money. You get ad-free feeds. You get uh, special uh, bonus audio and video features. Uh, you get uh, to live watch us making the podcasts in real time, if that's something you're interested in. Uh, there's just a ton of stuff. And you can actually test drive most of these features. If you go to club.baldmove.com, we've selected ones that we think are interesting. Uh, and you can check them out. And also, you can get a free 30-day trial just by signing up to club.baldmove.com. And we'd appreciate your support. Let's talk some feedback, Jim. Okay. Uh, I've only got uh, one fragment that I was able to recover from uh, Sam. I don't know. I'm just, why, why am I trying to make this a first of the fist of the first band cash kind of thing? I got I got a one single email that's non-spoilery, and then we'll have a whole bunch of spoilery emails. It's from Lauren M. She goes, even though we don't know much about the Whites, when Asha's retelling a story about her run-in with the White that used to be her man, it sounds like he knew to go back to where they used to live. Has Gurm ever spoken about if Whites still have memories of their old lives? Not to my knowledge, although the So Spake Martin archive is wide and broad, and I certainly haven't read all of it. But I would also like to point out that in the first season, when we have the Black Brothers who were carried underneath the wall um, and reanimated, they knew to go right to the Lord's com- Lord Commander's quarters. Mm-hmm. Like, like they weren't fumbling around and like doing zombie shit from Walking Dead. They were almost like on a mission. So. There's a couple ways you can interpret that. Maybe they retain some part of their memory or whatever force is animating them and controlling them has access to the the same memories. Hmm. Um, 
So whichever one it is, I do think there is there is something about when they take over a dead person, they uh, the, the the White Walkers have the memories and and intellect that that person uh, possessed, which is scary because mm-hmm. it's a great way to get intelligence, right? Yeah. Um, and it's that's not like set in stone. That's just what I think is what's happening when we look at these different situations. And it's and we don't have a ton of information to go off of either. Uh, that is all the unspoiled email that we can consider at this time. Uh, we will have a spoiler section here in a minute. I just want to let everybody know that uh, Game of Thrones at uh, baldmove.com is where you want to send us uh, these, these missives if you want to be considered for the podcast. And uh, also forums.baldmove.com if you want to talk about uh, the episodes with your fellow fans. And now we should get to the spoiler section. Jim, did you have any uh, spoiler observation? First of all, Theon's torture count uh, is is now stands at six. Okay, lots of torture, lots of torture. Yeah, Uh, the cut off his cock. Yep, yep. And then there's a a really just awesome uh, Ramsay eating sausage scene here. Here coming up, it's it's a real treat. It's a real, it's 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 a real gifable, memeable moment. Very good. Um. Did you have anything you want to talk about? I had a couple points. Yeah, just one small one. The uh-huh. the scene where Jamie's leaving and he's talking to Roos and he says the Lann- Lannisters send their regards. Uh, that's obviously coming back yeah. in, in episode nine. Yeah. Uh, when he slits, when he slits Rob's throat. I think he stabs him. Stabs Rob. And yeah. It says Jamie Lannister sends his regards or the Lannisters send their regards. Yeah. Uh, also, same scene. Locke taunts uh, Jamie by saying, "Go buy yourself a golden hand." Mm-hmm. He does. He does. Totally yeah. does. And it's actually a somewhat fearsome we- uh, weapon of war. Uh, I want to talk about a contemporary theory that was really popular in these these Twilight moments of season three, which is Talisa as a Lannister spy. Okay. If you recall that, like, she's writing this missive in a foreign language and, like, Rob pointedly asks, like, oh, what are you writing? Who are you writing? Oh, my mother. Oh, is that a language that I can't understand? And there's a lot of prominent sequences in the previous chat season uh, where she is similarly, like, he, she, they make it a big point that he's, she's embedded in Rob's camp and she's always, like, scribbling on scrolls and writing things. And there was a, a, a really big theory that had some kind of robust theory crafting behind it that it turns out that she was going to be a Lannister spy that was keeping Tywin apprised of all of Rob's strength and movements and where he's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's true. And and in fact, it's like I would say it's an un, it's it's a it's an undisprovable argument because maybe maybe she was the spy and you know Tywin just you know eliminated her to to eliminate witnesses or whatever to his villainy. I, I don't know, but if I were going to try and throw some doubt on it, I would say Tywin loses a lot of battles mm-hmm. against Rob, and if mm-hmm. he had perfect knowledge of his whereabouts and numbers right. and positioning he probably wouldn't lose those battles but i think people that's one of the pieces of evidence is that rob is winning all of his battles until talisa showed up on the battlefield once she joined his camp he started facing you know like setbacks and 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 also tywin kept kind of running from him and you know he's mm-hmm. somehow the mountains eluding him but you know i think that's more to do with uh, edmure stupidity but yeah. it's it was a contemporary huh. theory that i thought because i 
I didn't give it much credence because you know I knew what was coming, mm-hmm. and but it was a very popular theory, and I just want to throw it out there because that's kind of one of the things we do try to like. And it's weird because like I this whole season, I was thinking like, where's a good point to talk about this? Because it would be fun to advance theories like like if I had a perfect right recall of like where the fandom was at this point in the season, like to like let the people who are not spoiled uh like right. like like but it's weird because if a theory is accurate i would it would be a spoiler so if i'm just divulging hey here's what's in the zeitgeist it's talisa as a spy people would be assuming well that's not a right theory or why would aaron be talking about it mm-hmm. so i just i just do it for fun here in the, uh, the spoiler theory for everybody to remember oh yeah that was a thing uh anything else no nah. all right uh, Alexis M from Los Angeles uh, says Miri Mazdura kept saying that only death can pay for life it occurred to me now how often this theme pops up in the Song of Ice and Fire series when Danny builds the funeral pyre, pyre for Drogo three people go into the fire and three dragons come out I know there's a theory out there about Danny being a reanimated fire white maybe this is an ev- some evidence for that Cal Drogo is already dead yes but she was letting go of his life with that ceremony. Did Drogo, Miri Mazdur, and Danny herself pay for the life of the dragons with their own? If true, perhaps that fact is Dan- Danny is some sort of undead creature, as is Jon Snow, meaning their deaths could pay for a life, specifically one that will grow in uh, Danny's undead womb. Life for, uh, from death, right? I mean, I think the show... I don't know how the books handle this, but the show, in my mind, has said Danny was unfazed by that fire. Right. Not that she was burned up and killed and came back. They right. they say that essentially she's immune to heat and fire and stuff like that. Maybe only in certain moments. Right. But I mean that bathtub scene where we first see her, mm-hmm. the water's so fucking hot it burns people. Yeah. No, she's sitting in it like it's nothing. It's indisputable that in the show Danny has fireproof powers because it's demonstrated right. or heat proof powers, I guess. It's demonstrated many, many times. Yeah. Um in the books, it's it's not a thing. Like George Martin says, it's not a thing. Danny gets burned by her dragon's fire, um, and or no, she gets. I think she gets burned when she's trying to pull a spear out of uh, Drogo's flesh, and just the heat of the hmm. spear sears her hands. Um, and she later has bandages, and she's complaining about, oh, my hands are hurt because they're burnt. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely a show thing. Um, I do like the symmetry of like. I do like the symmetry of her actually dying, but in some kind of weird dark blood magic, her her life force was channeled into the dragons, and that somehow brought her back as well. And there's also a, there's also a fourth life if you want to throw in there that the you know Rego, the son that she lost, miscarried during this whole fiasco too. Hmm. Um, and it is, but that's the thing. Like now you're starting to see the problems of the theory, right? Well, Drogo was dead already, so like Miri burned alive, Danny burned alive, and a corpse burned alive, and that was life for life. Like Danny smothering him with a pillow earlier in the day counted for that. And then like, what about the Regal thing? Did that save Drogo's life? But I, it, it's it, it does it, it. The more I think about, it, the less convenient it is. Um, and also, like I don't, I honestly don't know what Martin's playing with. Would would he do something kind of that ghoulish where like if if John and Danny are like undead people giving birth to a live baby like is that going to what does that mean mm-hmm. because if it's just well they died and now they're alive and they're indistinguishable from any other living person then all this talk of fire and ice zombies seems 
overblown because we've seen a white. We know what a white looks like, and it's yeah. not looks like John does not look like John Snow. Like we've seen, like now we've seen fucking Uncle Benjamin come back. We know what an uh, animate, friendly, has all their wits about them white looks like, and it's not that. So, um, and if anything, John being brought back by uh, um, Melisandre and not like through some kind of old god's magic, they're both they'd both be fire zombies. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of problems with the theory, and also. It doesn't seem like that religion requires a life for life. Right. Because uh, well, the people who bring them back don't lose their lives. Tr- true, but they but they lose parts of their soul, is what's the report. I, yeah, you're making the stink does, face. Does, because... does Thoros lose part of his soul, or does Beric, when he comes back? That's what he says. Like, That's what he professes. But in yeah. both in the books and the series, it's something that he states and he feels, but there's not like a lot of freaking evidence and i think there's even one scene where john says he doesn't feel like quite himself but like yeah. he still acts identically to any other season of john snow so <laughs> you know and, and the thing is like what will happen in the books because john's dead like as we speak he still lies dead after being betrayed by his fellow brothers at the end of dance of dragons so who knows what martin is going to do but the show has gone their own way and i, I don't think any of that stuff is going to play out uh Tiang from Worcester, Massachusetts. I was watching Sansa and Marjorie's scene, and I wanted to address what I feel is a somewhat unjustified Sansa hate train. Sansa's entire storyline, both in the books and the show, operates as a reflection of Gurm's criticism of conventional Western high fantasy and fairy tales. The pretty princess who dreams of one day marrying a prince charming, becoming queen, and birthing kings is summarily punished for her naivete, becomes uh, trapped in a nightmarish lion's den... And as the plaything of a psychotic incest-bred prince and a stripped of all of her agency. So she is never meant to be an Arya, Danny, or even a Marjorie. In this world of political machinations, backstabbing, blood magic, and so on, I think what Gurm wanted to do with Sansa was portray a regular-ass girl who really just doesn't have it all together and with a little more than a famous name in her wits does her best to keep her head above water while she swims with sharks. And it works. In the first five seasons, Sansa Stark proves herself as queen of being able to survive just about anywhere, no matter the circumstances. And she does live. When many others that were faster, stronger, smarter, and more cunning have died, sweet dear Sansa Stark has lived. Now, in order to step into the greatness of her starkdom, Sansa has to outgrow that naivety. By the end of Season 5 and the beginning of Season 6, she has. She's the one that convinced the battle-weary John that they had to fight for Winterfell. The Knights of the Vale rode for her. In Season 7, she ran a hell of a tight ship as essentially Queen Regent of the North, securing the North's food supplies for winter and getting Winterfell battle-ready. Let's give Sansa the credit she deserves. I I think we do now. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. We didn't like Sansa early on. I think pretty much everybody's mind has been changed at this point. I, I mean, pretty much. But, like, just as we saw in Breaking Bad, uh, almost everybody disliked Skyler in the beginning, and most mm-hmm. everybody came around to be like, that's fucked up, and she didn't deserve any of this. Mm-hmm. But there's always holdouts, right? Yeah, you know? that's why I say pretty much. Not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not de facto everybody. But, no, uh, I, I feel like this feel, this this is, we are watching, like, Sansa's Nadir here. Mm. Um 
and the last time that she kind of like lo- like like gets her agency taken away is when she gets shuffled off to the veil but from there on she starts reclaiming and figuring out how the thing you know partially because of little fingers tutelage she starts figuring things out and making her own moves mm-hmm. and then you know by the end of season seven she just flips the tables on on little finger so and, and i'll throw out look you can use the excuse that we've used for uh for rob in this episode he's very young uh so is sansa sansa's yeah. even younger than he's supposed to be and so. and, and li- while rob was trained to be a warrior yeah. and a leader sansa was not trained for any of this shit she was trained in needle pointing yeah. looking pretty good and posture and curtsying. polite conversation like, yeah yes nothing prepared her for being thrown into as you say the lion's den of king's landing right so like She's younger than Rob, less experienced, and has zero preparation. At least Rob, you know, was taught to be a warrior and a leader. Yeah. Um, Sean McGee, in your discussion of the climb, you talked about how cool it was to see Tyrion or Tywin Lannister match up with the Lena Tyrell in the Battle of Wits. Tywin's trump card was naming Loras to the Kingsguard. I don't remember exactly what happens in the books, but in the books, Loras has at least one other brother, uh, although I think there's something wrong with him. Uh, so I can't imagine this would have worked. Was Cersei engaged to Loras a thing in the books? And if so, how did Elena come to agree to it? I mean, it's this this part is super simplified and stripped down in, in the show as compared to the books. And there is no analogous hmm. scene because neither Tywin nor Elena are POV characters. Um, so you'd never just see them in a room scheming alone. Um, you're right. Loras's older brother, Willis, I think is his name, had... Uh, uh, some sort of crippling disease, like a club foot or a lame foot that that kept him from like being the warrior that Loras was. Uh, but he is the heir to Highgarden, which is not nothing. And in the books, similarly, Tywin kind of breaks Cersei and says that, no, I'm going to remarry you. But he listed off a whole bunch of possibilities, like marrying Balin Greyjoy to bring the Iron Islands back into the uh, 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 fold. And his uh, wife, I think, was of falling health. Uh, marrying her to Oberyn Martell to kind of smooth over that old wound that was, we're about to find out is a, is, is, is a wound. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the red, some red wines, Theon Greyjoy, one of the Martell princes, and the uh, Willis uh, Tyrell. Or is, but but nothing ever came of it because then you know the the Joffrey is poisoned and that led to the trial, which led to Tyrion eventually killing him. So and then. Then Cersei was free to do whatever the fuck she wanted for two books, and it was terrible. And she essentially tried to lead on every man and manipulate them with with her bed and 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 promises of marriage. And it's it's, it's pretty because the funny thing about that in the books is that she's not aware that everyone that she thinks she's seducing is using her. Like they're actually spies hmm. for other people, or yeah. you're manipulating her because she's just you know she doesn't have the experience to do this shit either. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex G. Very much enjoying your Game of Thrones retrospectives. Well, thank you. Just wanted to weigh in with the defense of Rob as we approached the Red Wedding. I think your take on him was a bit harsh. Compared to his arc with Daenerys, they both have had potential. They both are kids. They both make many early mistakes. The difference is that every one of Rob's mistakes blow up in his face, whereas Daenerys (laughs) ends up with minor roadblocks that generally turn into learning experiences. Examples. Both are betrayed by someone they shouldn't have trusted, Theon and Jorah. Theon's betrayal fractures uh, Rob's kingdom, but Jorah's betrayal fizzles when his assassination attempt fails. Rob's biggest mistake, marrying someone he shouldn't have in a way that sets him back politically. Daenerys does the same thing in Marine, but her husband gets murdered by the Sons of the Harpy before there are any real consequences to her decision. 
Rob needs more troops and is forced to go to the Freys, while Danny needs more troops and is captured by the Dothraki. Rob gets murdered while Daenerys gets a brand new army. I could go on. And I, you know what, Alex, you are right. The writer is on Daenerys' side and he is not on Rob's side. Yeah, I mean, well, I would say that is what you get when you put your fate in the hands of fate. <laughs> like, when you don't take your your own future by the reins. Right. Uh, because I don't see Tywin being in any of those situations, right? I don't see someone more experienced and more careful uh, being in those situations. And I think the difference, it, I, I don't know. I, I view, like like you said, look, Rob has been trained. Rob has been counseled many times on being a warrior, being a leader. That's who he needs to be because he's the eldest of the Stark family, right? Mm-hmm. He's one day going to take over Ned's position. Mm-hmm. So he should know better. Danny shouldn't know better. Danny needs uh, a lot of learning. She needs a lot of time to figure things out, whereas Rob shouldn't need nearly as much of that. Yeah. And even Tywin, in his youth, when his father died and he took over, like he inherited a uh, a realm of, in disarray. His father was generally a weak leader who got Twitter-pated by a young wife and wasn't paying attention to his duties at court and to his own bannermen, and he'd let these reigns of Castamere become almost as wealthy and powerful as the Lannisters. So when Tywin went to bring them the heel, I mean, I don't... I, I, that was that was a toss of the die because this was a large, powerful house, and if the, he had the majority of the lords on his side and raised the banners and crushed Tywin, or, or instead of, you know, essentially instead of insulting Tywin, if Tywin showed up, he just, you know, took him prisoner and, and, and took over the thing, like what... We may not have the image of Tywin as this great master tactician, so he had a little bit of luck on his side. I think is is a way to is a one way to read that scenario, and Danny did too, and Rob did not. Because I, I I do agree with the analysis here that yeah. essentially every one of Rob's mistakes was punished harshly, uh-huh. where Danny has just the thickest of plot armor. <laughs> yeah, she she got soft landings on all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and here's the weird thing is. I think retrospectively, I give Danny a little more leeway because she does have this arc where mm. she learns a lot and she, you know, makes a few mistakes and sometimes they threaten to blow up in her face. Sometimes right. they do in a minor way, but right. but she is on this path of learning. Whereas Rob gets you know cut down in his prime, and I give her a little more latitude because I know the journey she's going to take. Right, and I think people were a lot less patient with Danny in the first watch. Mm-hmm because they didn't know where it was going. They didn't know if it would ever go anywhere, that kind of stuff. Right. No, I mean, that's the thing. Like, once you settle down and accept the fact that she's not going to sail to Westeros and kick ass, dude. Right. Like, I remember being very frustrated with that whole arc when I was reading it. Um, But then I read, was it the Miranese Blot, I think? It was a blog, like a, a big WordPress blog, and this guy laid out this 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 argument that like you know this this is actually really intense political you know pot boiler boiler thriller kind of stuff mm. and when i read it read it a second time i'm like oh yeah i'm seeing these were necessary like you know it's not as exciting because like everything in the first three books just fucking is relentless yeah you know ned gets killed banners get raised kings start marching battle 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 mm-hmm. betrayals and, and danny yeah. danny's just cooling her heels over there and slowly amassing power but that's like that's definitely an interesting thing it's just not it's 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 
Martin subverts his own expectations by having the first three books be these like t- tightly plotted thrillers, and the others then become kind of meandering and whatnot. But hmm. but yeah, if you can on second watches and you really appreciate what they're doing with Danny, it, it's entertaining. It's just not what I think people were wanting or expecting from from the jump. Yeah, uh, Lauren has a couple of mini questions for us. Uh, Marjorie mentions the sands that her son could be Lord of Casterly Rock in the North. Do you think Tywin would have ever given Tyrion's son Casterly Rock? Hmm. I mean, you're talking about something. If if Tyrion knocks up Sansa right now, that this kid is not even going to be thinking about Lord of anything until he's like 16 or so, 15 or 16. Yeah. How long will Tywin live? Because once Tywin's dead, it's fair. Jamie, you know, the thing is, is like at this point in the story, Jamie is like best buds with Tyrion. Like they are really good friends mm-hmm. and they love each other. Yeah. And. You know, Jamie loves Cersei, and he's a Kingsguard. And what are the odds that Tywin dies? And suddenly, like, if anyone is going to make a claim, like, like if Tywin died, and just Jamie keeps his mouth shut. T- Tyrion's Lord of Castle Rock. Like, that's just. I mean, I don't know what kind of wills and testaments you can live, but like, I don't. I don't think there's any kind of document <laughs> that would screw. Yeah, no, I... And unless unless Tywin before he died strong arm Joffrey into signing some kind of like stripping Tyrion of his lands and titles and inheritance. That's who I'm worried about. I don't know exactly that that I'm worried about. Like yeah. Tywin saying, oh, you got to do this to Tyrion. Uh, but Joffrey. Joffrey seems like the wild card there because he yeah. hates his uncle. Not only that, he but hates I, him. I could see it's like a Baratheon situation where Joff sits on the throne, but he gives his younger brother like castle or rock in the same way that like, you know, Stan has got Dragonstone and Rinley got Storm's End. Mm-hmm. Um, so like all three brothers reigned a big, big prestigious castle. So I could see Joffrey doing that. Like Tommen goes and takes Castle Rock and, and Tyrion's kids don't get shit, but I I could see Joffrey. What if Joffrey might give him the windmill? Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. 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 And then throw him off of it. (laughs) Um, cause that's a good, that, you know, if, if, if Joffrey continued being a mad King little shit and Tyrion's the only thing that ever kept him in, like as soon as Tyrion, or I'm sorry, as soon as Tywin died, like it might be a real fucking dark age in Westeros. Yeah. Like, you know, unless Marjorie can, Tyrion might just get killed because like Mm -hmm. Joffrey fucking hates him. Yep. He hates him for being right. He hates him for all the slaps of his stupid face. (laughs) He hates him for trying to rein him in when he was King. He hates him for surviving his first murder attempt. Yeah. 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 Uh, Lauren, oh yeah, she continues. I've definitely read a lot of fan theories that say if Sansa were to be with anyone after war is over, it should be Tyrion. He's the only person's ever tried, never tried to hurt her or use her for a station. Do either of you like this theory? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what legs it has, but I do think that's an accurate assessment of Tyrion as a person. Yes, I don't think he would hurt Sansa. I'm ambivalent because I kind of think feel like Sansa deserves to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that Tyrion is even after everything she's been through and her appreciation. I don't know that that's her ideal ideal match. Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, and there's just also there's just so much history there. Like sometimes, like maybe in an alternate universe that would have been. But like, I just don't know that she could like. Is that something you just joke about? Like when you're an old married couple, like oh, remember when you were traded to me like 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 a fucking horse and I was and oh, you you were. 
scared to look at my car. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't, this doesn't seem romantic to me. And yeah. like, I think that would be an interesting resubversion if at the end Sansa gets some sort of romantic kind of ending that befits her dreams since she's went through so many nightmares. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that that's something Martin might do. I'm just saying that like, I'm not the biggest Tyrion Sansa shipper. Uh, if Gendry survives the end, what do you think of the theory that he will be legitimized by either John or Danny? I think it's fucking dangerous politically. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> to, I mean... to legitimize the son of the old king, the usurper. Mm-hmm. Um, you so... have to really trust Gendry is never going to fuck you, uh-huh. because uh, look up uh, like the, the 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 you know like 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 um, the War of the Dragons and the proximate cause of that and. You know, look at uh, Magor the Cruel, uh, or was it was it Magor the Cruel, or was it? Uh, oh no, it's Aegon the Unworthy that legitimized all of his bastards on his deathbed, and it just led to a massive civil war, the Blackfire Rebellion. Like yeah. historically, nothing much good happens when you legitimize these bastards. Um, what you would do is you find like Gendry and uh, maybe make him a master of arms. You keep him close on your inner. You make him best buds. He's your hunting buddy. You make sure he gets a nice suitable match. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it would throw a lot of a lot of cold water on some of the theories of how this will end. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they were to try and legitimize some new king, right? For right. the Iron Throne. Or just legitimize him, and he's not going to sit on Iron Throne, so he's just... Okay. Because he wouldn't, like, if he's yeah. legitimized, he and they go back to the original bloodline, mm-hmm. then he's nowhere near, like, ready to take on the throne. But but And, and this mm-hmm. is not a statement against Gendry. You take a young man, and you legitimize him, and then you give him decades of noble lords that want to start shit whispering in his ear, you know, your father was the... And, you know, some people say that he was a lot better than these fucking Targaryens, and... It's just asking oh. for trouble. I, th- I thought you meant he wasn't. He wasn't even in line for it. He's but not. He, he, he's not. Well, if he were le- legitimized, he wouldn't be. I mean, he'd be so far behind so many other people because, like, like Bobby's cl- Bobby B's claim to the throne is he was like one of his great aunts was second cousins to a Targaryen. Okay, well, yeah. Uh, I guess I was like looking at it from a starting over at Bobby kind of thing. You know, yeah. Like, let's forget about that whole Joffrey and Tommen experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then, yeah. Uh, but then, Danny's not gonna. She's not gonna put him on the throne. So now I'm just right. saying that, like, it's, I mean. it's, it seems like it's rebellion bait to me. Yeah. Um. Unless, again, the other thing is, like, I think there's going to be some sort of very proto Magna Carta type Athenian democracy that's yeah. the end of this. I think there's a lot of hints in season seven towards that. And um in that case, then you legitimize him and then if he gets duly appointed by the Lord's Paramount to sit on the throne, then whatever, you know. Uh David B. I've been progressing through your rewatch podcast in Game of Thrones and you refer to the wall as being depicted on screen as much shorter than the book description of seven hundred feet. I believe you even have references regarding the design team discussing this with Martin. However, I think you may be mistaken. If you take, and he sent copious uh, photoshopped images to support his argument. You'll have to take my word for it here. Mm-hmm. If you take the picture of the wall of Castle Black at the base and the elevator clearly visible, shown below, you can extrapolate the height of the wall if you know the height of the highest towers of Castle Black. You can estimate the height of the towers of Castle Black from the scene showing the inner courtyard, second picture included below. Assuming the average height of a man in Westeros is around five foot six, it appears that each floor in the castle would be around 10 foot high. The rooftops in the higher towers would be around 45 feet high due to their steeple formation. 
Now you take that and match it against the elevator in the wall from the first picture, and you have an approximate height of the wall on the show uh, in picture three below. There are 14 to 15 of these segments, giving the wall height of in the show around 630 to 675 feet. Although this is tall, it is basically a 70-story 70, 70 building, which is not all that shocking if you've spent any time in New York City. All right, let me say, no offense to the emailer, no offense to you, Aaron. Yeah. Because I know you loved at one point to engage in this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This is the least interesting thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't care to think about this for even one second. All right. <laughs> I I mean... But I know there are people out there who do. Right. I know there are. And to No date, offense to you. And as someone who is, I will say, David, uh, I think I don't, I don't have any problems with their math. And I actually went to try to find... Because I was just going on my memory. This is something I didn't look up. So I actually went and, and saw if I could reconstruct how I arrived at this idea. And I found an interview with Martin where he showed up to the set where they filmed the wall and it's in a stone quarry and the walls of the stone quarry are around 300 some feet. And Martin remarked to the set guys like, wow, like this is, this is pretty much how it would look, huh? And the guy's like, oh no, this, these walls are like half the size of what, of, of, of what the wall should be. And Martin said, he quote, quote unquote said, oops. And I saw another interview um, where he claimed that he realized he fucked up the scale of the walls when he went to the Cliffs of Mower, or I don't know how to pronounce it, it's an Irish word, uh, and those are exactly 700 foot tall, and he saw just how ridiculously high they'd be. Like, here's the th- here- big problem with 700 foot walls and medieval technology. There ain't an archer in the world that can threaten a position that tall. Mm-hmm. You know, so like every time, like you, like you, like if you got the strongest man and the most powerful longbow, you would be hard pressed to shoot an arrow four hundred feet into the air. Huh. So like, there's absolutely shit all that the wildlings could do to ever threaten these positions unless they physically climbed the wall and took them hand to hand. And right. good luck with you know, we'll see how that goes <laughs> uh, in in a couple of episodes or seasons. But so. I mean, I, I think you're right that the, the, it's not quite 700 foot tall, even with your estimates, but it's it's closer than I, I thought. I thought that the I thought I read somewhere that the CGI was scaled on like a 400, 450 foot wall, but I could not find that anywhere. So hmm. anyway, like you said, Jim's Jim's bored as hell and I was interested. So there you go. Rich from New York. Uh, hey, guys, last episode had Ramsey offended that Theon would think he was an umber. I think this is a nod to the books, given that the umbers were traditionally rough and rugged men who lived in harsher conditions than the rest of the north, given their proximity to the wall. Their house sigil is also of a giant in chains, so I suspect that there are rumors or made-up stories about them, which would certainly inform Ramsey's opinion. Anyway, as was shown in Season 6, Small John Umber betrayed the Starks by giving up Rick and Stark and then fought with the Boltons on their side during the Battle of the Bastards. This obviously is in contrast to what happens in the books where the Umbers are fiercely loyal to the Starks, even having Small John as Rob's personal guard. I know you talked about this during your Season 6 recaps, but I was wondering if you had any new thoughts on the change in story since you've all been rewatching the series from the beginning. The great John Umber is still shown to be a great supporter of Rob as the King of the North, and the Umbers in general are still shown to be loyal to the Starks since they provide shelter in Rickon. I mean, I think, I mean, the unsatisfying answer is season six is where the double D's is just like, fuck you, George, we're mm-hmm. doing whatever we want. And yeah. we need to, like, because, like, like, I, I can't state, state this over much. Uh, the Battle of the Bastards hasn't happened yet. 
it's being set up at the end of Dance with Dragons. So they have zero information to go on. They got maybe we we don't know how much information, but we mm-hmm. uh, it's highly unlikely that George has all this political shit figured out and a satisfying conclusion to even to the battle of the bastard and who's going to win and what's the aftermath going to be. And I think the double D's are like, you know what? Let's just pick a couple of houses that have name recognition, like the Umbers, and let's let's like put them on the one side, and we'll put the, the Umbers and Glovers there, and we'll put these other, you know, the Mormons and others on Rob's side, and everyone's kind of heard of these names, right? Let's go with it. Like, I don't think the books are going to go <laughs> anywhere close to how the Battle of the Bastards and the Northern Campaign goes in, in the show. Um hmm. And I don't think the Double Ds give a shit about the Umber status of fiercely loyal bannermen, and you know because they they made that a whole point. Like in the books, everybody everybody in the North is like, if we like like if we can fucking kill some Boltons and Freys before we go out before the winter, let's do it. I'd read like this. I forget the one guy who's in mm-hmm. one of the Northern Mountain clans, and he's like. I like I'm not going to live through this winter. I want a guy going out bathing in Bolton blood, you know, <laughs> and that's like the sentiment of the North. The fact that like the North would be tight, tar- tar- like torn the loyalties between the Starks and the Boltons is horseshit. Huh. It's just utter horseshit. OK, but what are you going to do? Like, who are you going to blame? The Double Ds for writing some shit in six months or Martin not finishing in <laughs> nine years? I know who I blame. <laughs> um, You have anything to add, Jim? No, no, no. All right. I feel like so a lot of the spoiler stuff. I just like you just you, I just rant like a madman. I mean, and, so much and, of it is and, like and, and based you, on the books laugh. too. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All right, Fern from New York City. I was just looking for clarification on Jamie's status with the Kingsguard. Did he join willingly or was he forced? In season one, when Tywin speaks to Jamie in the classic scene where Tywin's skinning that elk, he tells Jamie how he wasted his youth by being a bodyguard for a madman and a drunk. I took this to be that Jamie volunteered to be a Kingsguard and Tywin was always upset about the decision. However, in the Game of Thrones Blu-ray extras, where Charles Dance narrates the story of the Lannisters, or history of the Lannisters, he says the Mad King, recognizing that Tywin was becoming powerful as the hand of the king, and paranoid that Tywin might kill him to take power, forced Jamie to join the Kingsguard as insurance and a message to Tywin that the Mad King had Jamie close to him as a hostage. If Tywin knows this, why would he blame Jamie for wasting away his life as the king's in the Kingsguard? He can see Jamie, or I can see why Jamie likes being a Kingsguard because it lets him be with Cersei for his twincess fun, but it was forced <laughs> upon him. What say you? Hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's weird because I always got the same impression that right. You know, he he kind of chose that path. What's super interesting is Tywin's giving you the Lannister history from his POV. And what's really interesting, like, that um, later books and, like, A History of the World and Fire lay out is that a lot of the intimity between Tywin and Eris was the result of misunderstandings. In reality, Cersei put Jaime up to joining the Kingsguard because she thought it'd be a swell way for him to be in King's Landing and be always right by her side for the, all <laughs> their, like, you know, twin-cest love. And... Tywin uh, and and Eris was like okay well whatever um, but Tywin interpreted that as a as the power move that he so so when Charles Dance is reading this this is entirely Tywin's analysis that is flawed mm-hmm. of what the Mad King was thinking and the machinations behind it was it was Cersei's entirely to blame for Jaime uh, being the King's guard because Jaime doesn't give a fuck for first of all Jaime 
Jamie likes the Kingsguard, and he likes like he 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 grew up romanticizing those stories and those are the best swords, and he's it's it's the best sword. He's one of the best swords in the land. If he can be there and and fuck his twin sister, then he's all on board. <laughs> he has no he doesn't give a shit about Castle Rock or inherit. Huh. That seems boring as fuck. And you guys remember that Jamie's like a teenager at this time too. Yeah, yeah. So like everything we say about Rob and Danny goes double for him. So. Like it's I good said, that there's actually like a definitive answer for that because yeah, I was hoping it like, wasn't just another situation of eh, the double D's and eh, no, no, it's no, no, a no. hazy story. That, that's and... like in the early goings, there is everything, and I I really appreciated the detail that the that Tywin Lannister is telling the history from his biased, right. and imperfect point of view. Yeah. Where when you zoom up and the historians, like the Maesters, are writing the story, they're like. Well, you know, Eris was kind of butthurt because he thought Tywin was a little late saving him from these raiders, and mm-hmm. then there was, like, all these series of misunderstandings, and Ty- and also Eris was going crazy, so he got more and more paranoid, and things that he intended to be honors and boons were perceived as slights and vice versa, and... And then, in fact, that, 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 that sundered their relationship, because Tywin resigned as the hand... Uh, and then took Cersei back to Castle Rock, which separated the twins until Great. she got married to Robert. So, like, yeah. that was maybe Cersei's first grand plan that blew up in her face. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but it won't be the last. Um, all right. Sean from North uh, Kakalaki, which is that's what they called it. That's North Carolina. I don't know why North Carolina is called Kakalaki. Okay. Uh, I actually spent five minutes researching why, and uh-huh. I didn't come to a satisfying answer. So hmm. you North Kakalakians want to, is it just like, like I, it's like why are Indiana people called Hoosiers? Yeah. There's like five or six different bullshit folk stories, but mm-hmm. we just are. Uh, I'm hoping to attain your all thoughts about an idea I had while daydreaming in microbiology class today. The most common thought I've heard about you shouldn't the, you shouldn't be daydreaming while you you're in be, microbiology. You should be studying microbiology, man. You're yeah. paying a lot for those classes. Sure are. Uh, the most common thought I had uh, I've heard about the White Walkers is that they are a metaphor for climate change. I agree that this is a valid analysis, but I don't think it goes much further than the fact that the White Walkers changes the weather and that the general population is ignoring this threat. Yeah. I think that, and well, I mean, that's still a pretty good analogy. I think that another analogy can be made is that the White Walkers are comparable to an epidemic such as the Black Death. I personally think this metaphor fits more snug. First, as Night King, uh, the Night King represents Patient Zero. For each other uh, that he infects, whether another White Walker or a White, that individual now becomes a new vector to transmit the disease. After the long night, the White Walker disease slowly grew with help from Craster and the dead far north. Um, until reaching a large enough infected population to move into the general population of both the wildlings and Westeros. Uh, to my knowledge, diseases were largely not understood in the Western world until the scientist known as the father of epidemiology studied the cholera outbreak in the 1850s and discovered the connection between human waste disposal and contaminated drinking water. The name of the scientist established a modern disease study. The father of epidemiology is John Snow. And get out of here. You know what's funny is like I think this came up in season five, and we had the exact similar like floored reaction. Okay. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. Wow, um, what what a coincidence! What a coincidence! Because um, I don't. I'm trying to think, and I apologize. I had I had a weird a weird morning. I didn't get as much time to research as I usually do. Um, but. I, I want to say that, like, I, George is, like, maybe given three different things that the White Walkers could be allegories to, or maybe people have suggested to him. He's like, sure, whatever. Yeah. Um, I've always thought that the 
I, I know of recent years he's de- he's definitely seemed to be a fan of like the climate change thing is like hmm. everyone's petty squabbling about stupid shit essentially yeah marginal tax rates and whether men can get married to men and all this other stuff and yet we have a true catastrophe that's slow moving out of our sight like boiling a frog and we're doing nothing nothing about it until hopefully it's almost too late and not too late um but you know I like that theory because every time I talk about it, I get a bunch of angry emails saying, you stupid idiot buying in his global, like, you know, <laughs> proving my point. Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, this, I, your, your, your idea's got a lot going for it. Number one, the Jon Snow theory, the Jon Snow yeah. connection is pretty fucking badass. That seems pretty good. And uh, also, I think it fits, you know, if not thematically, it certainly fits the setting a little bit better. Um, that idea of, of like a black plague or a disease that uh, they don't know how to treat. And then, you know, everybody knows that when you kill patient zero, all of its whites die with it. Right. So that that just yeah. lines up perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what Jon Snow had to say about that. <laughs> uh, if you if you find typhoid Mary and you kill her, it just makes everything yes. everything better. Absolutely. But, they, uh, but to be honest, that's a show thing. Right, right. That's not even. The uh, I'm I'm kidding, obviously. Right. But right. I, I think setting wise, it does fit. Yeah. Pretty well. Yeah. It's like uh, you know, uh, I mean, he he outlined it perfectly and like mm-hmm. the idea that you could have an infection that you stamp out but there's like 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 uh ebola's deep in the jungles mm-hmm. or the, did africa even have jungles or is that was it deep deep into deep whatever in serengeti oh, wherever yeah. they get bush meat like there's these populations of monkeys that harbor it and then every once in a while someone eats the wrong monkey and it bursts back out like that's kind yeah, of yeah. fitting of like the long night like you think you got it beat back and it's gone and everyone forgets stops worrying about it and suddenly shit you know mm-hmm. uh people are getting sick and boarding planes and spreading around the world so I've I've played Plague Inc. I've mm-hmm. played Pandemic. I know how this shit works. Uh, and that's it. That is our podcast for today. If you would like to send in more of that there feedback, you can do so at Game of Thrones at BaldMove.com. Um, again, we have our forums. If you want to discuss uh, some spoilers or non-spoiler stuff in our, our forum threads, you can do so. Uh, we will be back next week for Episode 8. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.